1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The country of Georgia has a rich cultural history, assimilating traditions and ideas from both Europe and Asia, but it remains socially conservative. Now, a filmmaker's depiction of a love story between two male dancers is pushing back against that repression. And could the symptoms of aging be helped with the blood of the young? Well, maybe. A startup based on that idea has already folded, but there's some promising science behind it, and researchers are sanguine about tapping into this fountain of youth. First up, though, The Conservative Party conference is getting into full swing in Manchester. In more normal times, Britain's parliament would be in recess so the party could lay out its plans. These are not normal times. Lawmakers are back at work while much of the ruling party is elsewhere. The big policy pronouncements are spilling out concerning new hospitals and spending on roads. But the theme of the conference is get Brexit done, just what Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been saying so doggedly. With new scandals that emerged over the weekend, that might become, unbelievably, even harder.
2: There's
1: a very strange mood at the
2: Tory party conference in Manchester.
1: Our political correspondent, Duncan Robinson, is in Manchester, soaking up the atmosphere.
2: On the one hand, you've got Boris Johnson, the prime minister, marching around, being applauded by activists wherever he goes. And on the other hand, you've got Boris Johnson, the prime minister, on the front pages of newspapers, being accused of a whole host of misdemeanours. And what are they? Well, there's two quite serious allegations being made against Mr. Johnson. The first is with regards to a high profile journalist, Charlotte Edwards, who alleged that Mr. Johnson groped her at a dinner uh, while he was editing a magazine called The Spectator in 1999. So she alleges that Mr. Johnson squeezed her thigh under the table. And she also said that the the woman who sat on the other side of Mr. Johnson also had the same experience. Mr. Johnson denies all this, but we're in a different situation now to where we were in 1999. This is a sort of post Me Too scandal. And it's a serious problem for the Conservative Party because a number of cabinet ministers have already had to resign for similar allegations, literally for impropriety with, with female journalists. But
1: you said scandals in the plural.
2: What else? The other scandal is to do with a woman called Jennifer O'Curie, who is a businesswoman and model who, if you've opened a newspaper this weekend, uh, allegedly had an affair with Mr. Johnson. Now, this isn't a professional problem for Mr. Johnson in and of itself, but the problem is that her business received a number of grants and went on trade trade missions with Mr. Johnson while he was mayor of London. A- again, Mr. Johnson denies he did anything wrong, that there was no interest to declare, but journalists are still digging around on this topic, and it could run and run.
1: Well, these, these are not the talking points that Mr. Johnson would, would like to be bouncing around the Tory conference. What, what would he like to be talking about?
2: Absolutely not. This was supposed to be Johnson's sort of coup de theatre. This was his moment where he burst in as, as prime minister and laid out his vision for Britain's future. And his vision for Britain's future is, is basically two steps. The first step is they're going to get Brexit done. That's the phrase they're using. And the second step it involves just spraying uh, public services with lots of cash ahead of any election. And
1: as for Brexit, how's that going for Mr Johnson? I mean, there have been some embarrassing stories about how it's gone so far.
2: Yeah, so far, the the cunning plans hatched by Downing Street haven't quite gone uh, to plan. So they had a scheme which involved suspending Parliament for five weeks, which was much longer than it's been suspended suspended for any point since the Second World War. Uh, And that fell apart when the Supreme Court struck that down as illegal. And the problem with that uh, is that Boris Johnson technically used a power reserve for the Queen. So in effect, the Prime Minister had accidentally forced the Queen to break the law which is the one thing you're not supposed to do when you're prime minister. You're supposed to keep the Queen out of politics. And Boris Johnson had dragged her into politics in the most embarrassing way possible. So that means that, uh, reportedly, this weekend, he did actually uh, give an apology to the Queen, which is in and of itself quite embarrassing, but uh, and, and embarrassing on another level, because you're also not supposed to reveal any conversations that you have with the Queen when you're prime minister. So it's a real double, double whammy.
1: And in the course of all that mess, Mr Johnson managed to sack quite a few members of his party. Now there's this party conference in Manchester, while plenty of Parliament is at work back in London. Where are those sacked MPs now?
2: The, the, the sacked MPs are all over the place. Some have come to Manchester, some have stayed away, and some have joined other parties. And I think it's fair to say that those who, who, who've come are hopeful that there will be some form of future for them uh, within the Conservative Party, And the others who joined other parties, well, I think they've given up on it.
1: And so what about the ones who have gone to Westminster? What do you expect to happen in Parliament this week?
2: In Westminster, there's going to be a strange atmosphere because Parliament was supposed to be in recess, which is sort of a a step up from from being suspended. There are other bits and bobs going on, but they're not going to be doing votes. Except after all the shenanigans involving suspending Parliament, frankly, the rest of MPs don't trust uh, the current government, so they refuse to give them a a recess, which means that Parliament is still technically sitting, which means Parliament can still be passing laws, and if you've got all your MPs in Manchester while MPs from other parties are, are there, that leaves you quite vulnerable to some legislative shenanigans.
1: So this seems an increasingly extraordinary set of circumstances for for Mr. Johnson uh, personally, politically. I mean, he's uh, beset at every turn. Do you think that he and, and his supporters will be able to get past all this mess?
2: It does feel like everything is going wrong. But if you speak to people in Mr. Johnson's camp, they are extremely bullish and they have some reason to be that they are well ahead of Labour in the polls. In in most polls, they have about a 10-point lead which, if it is born into a coming election, will turn into a big conservative majority. And and that way, happiness lies for them. But their main advantage is the fact that Boris Johnson is preferred as the prime minister to Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party leader of the opposition. Jeremy Corbyn is remarkably unpopular with the general public. So, so Mr Johnson's extremely lucky in his opponent. But if your main advantage is the fact that people like uh, Johnson is the leader. Having Johnson surrounded by these scandals is certainly going to be a big, big problem. But the main benefit that Johnson has is that he has this strange, almost Donald Trumpish ability to ride scandal that would kill off other politicians.
1: I mean, Mr. Johnson might survive these scandals. His, his party might end up with a majority. But, but what about longer term? The party itself? It couldn't possibly be more fragmented.
2: Yeah, the, the Tories are split on Europe as they have been for the past quarter of a, of a, of a century. There is this hope among Conservatives that once Brexit is over with, that they can just focus on other things. But Brexit is not one of those stories that will disappear. This is going to hang over British politics for the next decade or so. So if, if the Tories are hopeful that they can get Brexit done, that it's an an end point rather than a process, they might be sorely mistaken. Duncan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good
3: credit from a local business to a global
0: corporation.
1: Georgia has a rich culture. It's known for its traditional, unaccompanied singing. The sound is influenced by numerous cultures. Georgia lies in mountainous lands between Europe and Asia. And there's also fierce, elegant Georgian dancing. The dances can represent the hunting of a gazelle or a competition between shepherds, as well as romantic duets. Tradition carries beauty across generations, but also entrenched prejudice. Some Georgians are confronting that through art.
3: We held Georgian culture with very high regard in our family. It was very, like, sacred. Levan Akin is a Georgian filmmaker who grew up in
1: Sweden in a family that prized Georgian music, film,
3: and traditional dancing. I used to love watching it because it's just so explosive and, and, you know, it's very dramatic and very passionate. And until he was an adult, he held rather an idealized view of the country. Yeah, I had like this sort of rose-tinted view of Georgia. And I did for a very long time, uh, up until maybe like the late 2000s when I started going to Tbilisi alone and I started to see, you know, other things. What happened was that I, in 2013, while I was doing another movie, saw images uh, and newsreels of this pride parade, the first ever in Tbilisi that a group of 50 young kids tried to hold on the streets of Tbilisi. And they were attacked by a mob of thousands that were organized by the Georgian Orthodox Church and some other far-right people. And the images were very terrifying. And I also, you know, having this rose-tinted view of Georgia felt sort of shame when I saw it because I never thought that it was, you know, that oppressive. He decided that his next film would take on the tension between valuing tradition
1: perpetuating bigotry.
3: And Then We Dance is a film about Merab, who's a young dancer in traditional Georgian ensemble. So when the film begins, we sort of are introduced to Merab right away and his situation in the ensemble where the dance teacher tells him that, you know, he's not dancing with enough uh, stamina and machismo. And he, you know, tells him that he needs to be like a nail. And then enters Irakli right away, which is a new dancer who joins the group. And you can sort of feel both rivalry and perhaps a little curiosity from Merab when he sees Irakli. And then the film sort of goes on to become a first love narrative and Merab navigates his conflicting feelings toward Irakli. The movie has been screened at international film festivals to wide acclaim.
1: It hasn't been shown in Georgia yet, but Mr. Akeen hopes it
3: will be. I do feel a lot of love for Georgia and Georgian culture, and I'm very proud of being Georgian, but I'm also at the same point trying to say that there's nothing stopping you from loving your culture and being, you know, whoever you want to be at the same time, because that's what the bigots have sort of hijacked culture.
4: I was really overwhelmed by the film. Georgia is a country that I know well, a country I'm fond of, and it seemed to reproduce in a very honest and authentic way the quality of life among quite ordinary people in Tbilisi, quite poor people in Tbilisi who are undergoing some extraordinary events. Bruce Clark has been writing about Georgian culture for The Economist. It's Georgia's a remarkable place in that it has a very rich culture of its own But Georgians are also very, very talented at adapting and mastering cultural forms that are born elsewhere, such as classical music, such as theater, such as film. They're generally people with a great surplus of cultural talent, you might say. And how's that changed over the time that you've been familiar with the country? Well, I've watched Georgia go from being a restive part of the Soviet Union when I first went there to dissolving into chaos and then gradually reconstituting itself. Now, during the period of chaos, cultural figures were fleeing the country just as a matter of survival. And now I'm glad to say that there is on the whole a more natural relationship between the Georgian cultural diaspora abroad and Georgia itself. On the whole, they can come and go quite freely. But there are exceptions, and this film shows that exception. What happens to the people who leave? Well, in either London, Paris, or Berlin, you could find extremely accomplished concert pianists who happen to base themselves in those cities, but are from Georgia originally, and at least once a year they would go back to their native Georgia and give a recital. One of them is the young, remarkable pianist Luca Okros, 28 years old. He is one of the leading concert pianists of his generation, and London is a good base for him, but he's always very keen to go back to his homeland at least once a year and give a recital.
1: And so these performers who who go abroad, are they just seeking wider audiences, or is it because there there's a bit of a push at home, a bit of cultural repression perhaps at home?
4: I honestly don't think there is too much cultural repression at home. In fact, I spoke recently to Luca Okros, and he says that he finds the cultural atmosphere in many ways better and better, and that if somebody with his talents had been growing up in Georgia now, probably that person could have got an adequate education in Georgia. So, in some ways, things are improving. To take another example, there is a theater director, Dato Papava, David Papava. Now, he more or less fled Georgia, as many people did, in the 1990s, when conditions there were pretty bad. And then finally, he returned to Tbilisi, albeit still traveling quite frequently to London. Now, Dato told me that he feels really very free in Tbilisi. He's put on some performances that are quite edgy politically, And not everybody liked the play aesthetically, but he didn't feel any political repression. So for artists in many fields, Georgia is a much freer place than it used to be.
1: But the director of And Then We Danced would find it impossible to to live there.
4: I think to live full-time in Georgia, certainly. He really is pushing the envelope in terms of Georgian social mores. And he himself has made the point that he could not have made the film if he were and native Georgian living full-time in Georgia. Now, the two stars of the film And Then We Danced, that's uh, Levan Gelbukhiani and uh, Bachi Valishvili, they are remarkable young individuals. Uh, they both say that they are determined to continue living in Tbilisi, their hometown, and their hope is to make the place into a more tolerant environment, a place where such films could be made more easily in future.
1: Bruce, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you. I enjoyed it. In
1: 2016, a startup in California found a new market to disrupt. Aging. Ambrosia offered older customers transfusions of blood from young people for just $8,000 a liter. The wealthy clientele were told that the young blood could slow down or even reverse the aging process, reducing their chances of getting cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and heart disease.
0: So the only evidence, and I'm going to put that in scare quotes, that what Ambrosia was proposing actually works is anecdotal or presented at a kind of dodgy conference with placebo-free Trials that don't really count as trials.
1: Sally Ad writes about science for The Economist.
0: It smells a bit like bullshit. So what's going on with Ambrosia now? Well, in the wake of a big FDA announcement that basically warned consumers that there was no evidence that any of this works at all, Ambrosia shut down its clinics. But the science that they were basing these sort of shady trials on is actually solid. There is a kernel of truth in it. How so? So in the early 2000s, there were experiments with heterochronic parabiosis, which is a fancy way of saying you stitch two rats together, one young, one old, so that they share a circulatory system. What they found when they did that is that the old rats exhibited so many signs that the symptoms of their aging had been reversed. They were better at you know, cognition tests. Their wounds yield more quickly. They had better heart function. There were just a lot of indications that their aging had gone into reverse.
1: So there is something in the blood that does make a difference, but I mean, how good is it for humans if what we're talking about is stitching people together?
0: (laughs) So I don't want a blood buddy, (laughs) even if it makes me smarter and heal faster. But yeah, of course, after these experiments people immediately started trying to figure out what it was in the circulating blood that was making these old rats act younger and feel younger. So one of the real pioneers in the field, she's like the OG, is Irina Conboy at the University of California at Berkeley. And she has just released a new study in the journal Aging she actually figured out that it wasn't just that young blood had good effects, old blood had bad effects. So she figured out that there's one particular protein that's a big culprit, and that protein is called TGF-beta. TGF-beta keeps your cell cycle from working properly. So that's part of the reason why old people, their wounds heal more slowly. So she was like, okay, we need to get rid of TGF-beta. You can do it with this enzyme called an ALK5 inhibitor. But if you get rid of all of it, it could be pretty toxic. Like, that won't translate very well for humans. So what she did is get it down to the levels that you have in young people. And then she added oxytocin, which had previously been shown to work at rejuvenating the old mice, but that was blocked by bad factors in the old blood. So TGF-beta goes up, oxytocin goes down, you're old. And so what she tried to do is turn off the faucet on TGF-beta, turn up the faucet on oxytocin. That's basically when she, I guess, hit the jackpot, which is that she found that the effects were really pronounced.
1: What do you mean? When you get the formula right, what happens?
0: So after just seven days on this stuff, the old mice had less inflammation in their brains. They had more stem cells in the hippocampus, which is important for memory. They had less altogether fibrosis, that's stiffness. Their muscles healed better and faster. And basically, they looked a lot like the old mice after parabiosis, but without the blood buddy.
1: I mean, it sounds great. I'm I'm no spring chicken. When can I get some of this stuff?
0: So obviously, caveat, caveat, caveat. Now, Dr. Conboy is designing a trial right now. She is going to recruit 20 people, and she's going to try this on them within a couple of months. And these things are already FDA-approved, which is a pretty big deal.
1: Both of the components of the cocktail are already essentially on the market available. Yeah,
0: exactly. So she's going to use them off-label. So already knowing that these things are approved for humans by the FDA means that that could be a clear path for a drug that comes very quickly.
1: So... I mean, what's the response of of the community? Does does everyone else think that this looks as promising as as you're making it sound?
0: She has an amazing reputation. The people that I talked to at the National Institute of Aging were like, she's got such a long history. She's pretty great. (laughs) But they're worried that nobody's really tested the combination of these two drugs before. To that, she says, doctors do that all the time. But I think certainly there's not going to be any shortage of people who would sign up for her trial. I think the problem is... Whenever you have the possibility for a drug that then leads to financial gain, as much as you really want something to be promising and a silver bullet, you always have to keep your skeptics hat on.
1: Sally, thank you very much for coming in.
0: Thank you so much for having me.